Welcome to my session. I apologize for the uh, clickbaity title, <laughs> Politically Incorrect Guide to Tolkien. Uh, being politically incorrect is something of a cottage industry these days. Uh, books and uh, all kinds of articles and, and uh, uh, content is coming out claiming to be politically incorrect. So I uh, apologize. I'm not necessarily trying to jump on that train. But I am going to present a different side of uh, Tolkien uh, to you. And we've been talking about these ideals, beauty, the transcendentals, uh, Tolkien's uh, um, vision of the world, story, these things that we would all hold in common and celebrate. And so I'm going to give you an, some views of Tolkien that might make us bristle a little bit. And my point here is not to balance Tolkien out to see what an average guy is. See, he's really great over here, but wow, look at this. My point is that maybe if we identify with Tolkien's uh, grand themes that we have uh, been discussing so far in this conference, and we think Tolkien is a great mind and worthy of studying, and, we, and maybe we're motivated to go a little deeper into Tolkien, I would encourage us to think, well, if he's right about this kind of stuff, maybe we should listen to what he has to say about some other issues that might prick us a little bit. So, we're going to talk about war, and war will be the main topic that I cover. I'm going to spend more time on war than anything else. Politics or government, and relationships between the sexes. So there's something here for everybody to get offended about. So if it's not on the first point, we'll get it on point two or point three. When it, uh, uh, just another uh, qualifier I just want to throw out. Um, when we talk about war, Tolkien's very much a critic of war and the world wars. He, was, he served in World War I. His son served in World War II. And uh, so he's very much a critic. And when I come at this, I'm going to be giving some of my own content here uh, on American history and American, the social consequences in Europe and America from the World Wars. I want you to know, just on a personal note, um, I am not a pacifist. So that's not where this is going. Okay. Secondly, I am an Army veteran. Uh, I was in the infantry, and I served abroad in Iraq in 2005 and 2006 in Ramadi. So I am not coming at this just as a mere uh, academic. I'm not a sheep throwing uh, criticisms at the sheepdogs, soldiers, or the army. Um, I know what it's like to be behind a weapon and pull a trigger aiming at somebody. So... My criticisms and, and, and discussion about costs of war and re repeating a lot of what, analyzing Tolkien is not coming at this because I'm a pacifist and is not coming at this from lack of experience, uh, experiential knowledge on this, this subject. So I just want to just inform, inform you a little bit of where I'm coming from here. So, um, so the, the first thing I want to do here when, when we're talking about war, so this is our first subject, war, is... Um, talk about the cultural costs of the World Wars. This is something that I wrote a few years back, and I tie in Tolkien here, and uh, especially Tolkien's 
depiction of the, uh, the, the scouring of the Shire. Okay? Because I think this gives us a very realistic picture of the costs of war. Tolkien doesn't end it in, they go back to the Shire and live happily ever after. He very much communicates the fact that things are not the same. Even in a war like this one, that's commendable and noble. Things don't go back. You don't put that toothpaste back in the tube again. There are things that are forever changed. So what I want to do is use the scouring of the Shire to talk about the cultural costs of World War I and World War II on our culture from a historical perspective. For some of you, I would imagine maybe the thought that there are costs to the world wars, especially World War II, which was the good war, is not even a category in our mind. So I want to establish the fact that there are cultural costs. There were and are cultural costs to the world wars. And then we're going to look at Tolkien's letters, um, which is where I get most of my content from. Tolkien, uh, you can go out and buy a collection of his letters just in book form. Highly recommend it. Very fascinating stuff. Um, but I, I'm going to look primarily at his letters during World War II that he wrote to his son Christopher, who was serving in the Royal Air Force. And we're going to, I'm going to read them, so it's, since it's focused on his letters, I'm not going to just give you a quote here and there or a sentence here and there. I'm going to put it, them up on the screen. Hopefully you can kind of follow along with me af, uh, as we read. And then I'm going to kind of riff on Tolkien's thoughts a little bit and, and analyze them from my perspective. So, here we go. On the cultural costs of the world wars. Of the more salient themes that run through J.R.R. Tolkien's masterpiece, The Lord of the Rings, war is perhaps the most explicit. Both the larger narrative and the various subplots offer, to those willing to look, an underlying set of insights as to the nature and costs of war. By teasing out some of these, we will find a helpful literary reference from which we can explore more deeply these themes applied to our own Western experiences with war and its cultural costs. For example, in The Two Towers, the Ents engage in a lengthy deliberation as to whether or not they should join the fight against Saruman. Joining the fight against Saruman as soon as possible might seem like the obvious course of action to take to the reader or the viewer of the film, which draws this out even more for uh, comedic effect. But through the ends, Tolkien takes his time to communicate his own reservations about engaging in war. Not too hasty. We find another great example in Tolkien's ending to the story, The Scouring of the Shire. It's in this very ending that Peter, ja it's this very ending that Peter Jackson omits from the film adaptation of the novel that has the effect of significantly altering the story. One can be forgiven for coming away from the movies and never sensing the strong anti-war theme that permeates Tolkien's original work. In the penultimate chapter of The Return of the King, the four hobbits return home after completing their quest to find that the Shire has been turned into a police state. Saruman and Wormtongue have taken up residence at Bag End, and have transformed the agriculturally-based Shire into a centrally planned industrial economy managed by an ever-growing bureaucracy of sheriffs and spies that keep the new overlord apprised of all the happenings in the region. No welcome, no beer, no smoke, and a lot of rules and orc talk instead, says Sam. The taverns have been shut down. 
The crops are confiscated at harvest time to be managed and rationed by Saruman. And the landscape has been transformed in order to accommodate the new planned industrial economy. Hobbit homes and trees have been torn down and replaced with a large factory piping black smoke. The scenery has a profound effect on the returning hobbits. Quote, this was Frodo and Sam's own country, and they found out now that they cared about it more than any other place in the world. End quote. Although the hobbits would go on to rally the Shire to battle and ultimately be rid of Saruman's influence, the victory comes at a cost. Nineteen hobbits are killed, and another thirty hobbits wounded. There is now a king in Gondor, but not even the Shire would escape the effects of the wars that were fought to destroy Sauron and his ring. There was no going back to the days in the Shire before the wars. The damage to the land and the hobbits' way of life had been done. Tolkien's conclusion demonstrates a very realistic understanding of the cultural costs of war. Having fought in World War I himself, Tolkien recognized that war is not a game. War, by its very nature, is kinesis, or motion, as Thucydides taught us. And as such, it is the least conservative force in the world. Wars fought for even the most noble of causes always produce lasting consequences on the home front, oftentimes unintended, that should make any society loathe to enter them. The scouring of the Shire then provides us with a literary illustration to help us consider the vast cultural changes brought about in Western civilization due to the world wars of the 20th century. If we can look beyond the glorious battle scenes depicted in our history books, we might find that the world wars took a leading role in destroying societal institutions and undermining traditional cultural values. The family, the church, and local mediating institutions took serious blows while the American government forged an empire. The modern technology of the world wars left homes psychologically broken, which in turn led to the culture-wide decay in social morality. The emergency powers claimed during the wars served to bring the progressive agenda to fruition, expand the reach of the state, and create more dependence. World War II ended in Europe on May 8, 1945. Less than one month later, though, Tolkien wrote to his son Christopher, there is a strand, uh, I'm sorry, there is a stand-down parade of civil defense in the parks in the afternoon to which I shall probably have to drag myself. But I'm afraid it all seems rather a mockery to me, for the war is not over, and the one that is, or the pan of it, has largely been lost. This is World War II. But it is, of course, wrong to fall into such a mood, for wars are always lost, and the war always goes on, and it's no good growing faint. Tolkien recognized that, just as Dr. Sunshine talked about last night, the story goes on after the eucatastrophe. The war goes on. The problems continue. There's not just a happy ending where everybody lives happily ever after. Wars do not end with everyone coming home and going back to normal. It's fairly typical among modern mainstream conservatives to identify the 1960s as the birth of the sexual revolution and the source of the breakdown of traditional family values. However, a better argument could be made that the 1960s were the culmination of a revolution that started much earlier and was a legacy of World Wars I and II. 
Long before the Supreme Court determined that birth control was a right emanating from the penumbras of the Constitution, I there quote the Supreme Court decision in Griswold v. Connecticut, the United States military was issuing condoms to soldiers deploying for World War I in 1917, and for good reason. Allied soldiers had been infected with a variety of venereal diseases while deployed on the front lines. It was not uncommon to maintain brothels at the front to serve the lonely men as they awaited their next venture into no man's land. After losing 116,000 men, and having come to the realization that the war did not quite represent the great moral crusade to end all wars, as President Wilson claimed it would, Americans became disillusioned not only with the idea of entangling itself in the affairs of Europe, but also the ideals and mores of the generation before them. Standards of dress for women changed rapidly in the 1920s as both sexes exchanged the social ethics of the bygone Victorian era for a lifestyle of sexual freedom. Frederick Lewis Allen, in his book Only Yesterday, An Informal History of the 1920s, says this, In effect, the women of the post-war decade, post-World War I decade, 1920s, said to man, you are tired and disillusioned from war. You do not want the cares of a family or the companionship of mature wisdom. You want exciting play. You want the thrills of sex without their fruition, and I will give them to you. And to, her help, to herself, she added, but I will be free. Disillusionment gave way to cynicism. Warren Harding's promise to return to normalcy resulted in a boom in the economic realm as taxes and spending were dramatically cut in the 1920s, but it did not translate into the socio-cultural realm. World War II provided the next blow against traditional morality as American GIs received a much more extensive sexual education provided by appreciative women in Europe and Asia. Combine this fact with the reality of having lived through the Great Depression and the Second World War, Americans tended to live for the moment rather than think about long-term commitments in relationships. While sexual promiscuity was not flaunted as it would later be in the 1960s, single motherhood was on the rise throughout the late 1940s and 1950s. What was considered culturally acceptable in the realm of entertainment had also undergone a notable shift after the war. Lost among the blatant physical casualties were the unseen psychological casualties of the world wars. The technology of modern warfare made war-making increasingly lethal. Machine guns, mustard gas, and artillery fire in World War I amassed record casualty numbers unforeseen in the history of war. Soldiers ascended out of their trenches, hoping to advance a few yards before taking a bullet so that the men behind them could advance a few yards still further toward the enemy trenches before being cut down. In order to survive psychologically, Soldiers had to separate themselves from the events that they witnessed and adopt, uh, adopted a detached view of life. One soldier on the Austrian line in World War I wrote, A certain fierceness arises in you, an absolute indifference to anything the world holds except your duty to, of fighting. You're eating a crust of bread and a man shot dead in the trench next to you. You look calmly at them for a moment and then you go on eating your bread. Why not? There's nothing to be done. In the end, you talk of your own death with as little excitement as you would of a luncheon engagement. 
Experiences such as, as these could do little else but cause one to take a desensitized view of human existence, which would be carried back to civilian life with those who did manage to survive the war. In addition to the lethality of the new weaponry, technology allowed for quicker transportation and mobilization of troops. The effect was to ensure that soldiers would almost never leave the battlefield. In previous wars, even in the particularly deadly American Civil War between the states, troops were afforded breaks from combat, even, for, uh, even if for no other reason than it took time to march and to maneuver troops. Deadly bouts with the enemy were interposed with long breaks where troops could safely assume they were out of harm's way, at least until their next engagement. The unmitigated exposure to combat in the world wars of the 20th century led to record numbers of men suffering from psychiatric collapse. The American military dismissed 504,000 men during the war as unfit to serve due to psychiatric reasons. In their 1946 study, Combat Neurosis, Development of Combat Exhaustion, Drs. Roy L. Swank and Walter E. Marhand determined that 98%, 98% of soldiers exposed to 60 days of continuous combat would suffer some kind of psychiatric illness. While the government increased combat efficiency, there's that word again, through improved technology, it did not realize that it would also need to produce a new kind of human being in order to withstand the toil that modern warfare would take on the psyche. Thus, retired Army Lieutenant Colonel and psychologist Dave Grossman in his great book, I highly recommend it, On Killing, The Psychological Cost of Learning to Kill in War and Society, writes this. It is interesting to note that spending months of continuous exposure to the stresses of combat is a phenomenon found only on the battlefields of this 20th century. Some psychiatric casualties have always been associated with war, but it is only in this century that our physical and logistical capability to sustain combat has completely outstripped our psychological capacity to endure it. Men are not machines. Grossman concludes, continuing his quote here, we must marvel at the inventiveness of modern armies and nations in their efforts to ensure that they get full value from their soldiers. And we cannot help but come away with an image of war as one of the most horrifying and traumatic acts a human being can participate in. War is an environment that will psychologically debilitate 98% of all who participate in it for any length of time. And the 2% who are not driven insane by war appear to have already been insane, aggressive psychopaths before coming to the battlefield. That's, again, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman. The new psychiatric effects of modern warfare would present unique challenges to the health of the American family in decades to come. Women would have to continue to provide financial, emotional, and spiritual support for the family as men continued to suffer from the psychological wounds that had been inflicted during the war. For many American families whose fathers had participated in combat, life would never be the same. Beyond the lingering effects of the war itself, the emergency powers claimed by the federal government served to bring the cultural... Uh, served to, um, 
bring the cultural revolution that had been begun by the progressives over the turn of the century to fruition. Historian Murray Rothbard in his essay, World War I as Fulfillment, Power, and the Intellectuals, demonstrates that rather than a rejection of progressive ideals, World War I served as a means of realizing vast social change. In his history of the progressive era, Rothbard argues that the driver of social change was an alliance between post-millennial pietists and special interests of big business. Two examples may be provided to illustrate his point here. Prohibition and women's suffrage. Prohibition had been a long-standing policy goal of post-millennial pietists going back to the Second Great Awakening. The revivalist tradition in America very quickly began to entangle itself with political and social causes with the aim of ridding the world of sin and bringing about the kingdom of God on earth. After slavery was abolished with the 13th Amendment in 1865, prohibition became the next great moral endeavor for the pietists in advancing the kingdom. Due to the influx of immigration, pietists were never able to accomplish this goal as immigrants tended to vote for Democratic Party candidates in the 1800s who tended to make more laissez, take a more laissez-faire approach to the alcohol issue. World War I provided the impetus for the federal government to restrict and eventually prohibit the production of alcohol in the name of conserving grain. Upon America's entry into World War I, the federal government quickly moved to restrict and then prohibit the use of grain to produce alcohol under the dual rationale of conserving foodstuffs and protecting soldiers. President Woodrow Wilson appointed Herbert Hoover to be the director of the newly created Food Administration. In that role as food czar, Hoover was placed in charge of food production and allocation in order to ensure the Allied Army was well supplied. Under the Lever Food and Fuel Control Act of August 1917, liquor production was prohibited. As Rothbard put it in his characteristically sarcastic tone, even though less than 2% of American cereal production went into the manufacture of alcohol, think of the starving children of the world who might be otherwise fed. Arguments against the prohibition of beer and wine were made as part of an anti-German campaign during the war as well. Under the Selective Service Act, which permanently established the government's power to conscript American men into war, Congress also declared dry zones and around every military base, prohibiting the sale or distribution of any alcoholic beverages to military personnel. Ultimately, the prohibitionist cause was able to succeed only under the guise of patriotic endeavor. Ratification of the 18th Amendment was completed in January 1919, prohibiting the sale, manufacture, and transport of alcoholic beverages in the U.S., and the National Prohibition Act followed 10, minutes, 10 months later to enforce that amendment. Overnight, this long-standing cultural component of immigrant communities became the currency of the criminal class and tainted by its association with the gang life of the underworld. Women's suffrage, the other example. Another long-standing issue in American politics and of central importance to the progressives was accomplished essentially as a trade-off for women's support in the war, war effort. Women showed their support and stepped up during the war effort in World War I and as a kind of compensation got the right to vote. 
The Women's Committee was created by the Council of National Defense for the purpose of coordinating, quote, the activities and the resources of the organized and unorganized women of the country, that their power may be immediately utilized in time of need, and to supply a new and direct channel of cooperation between women and government, and government departments. The Women's Committee was tasked with helping to promote the conservation of food, facilitate the registration of women to serve in the war effort, and work to Americanize immigrant women through education. Thus, women's suffrage was not so much a triumph for women's liberation as it was a means of securing women's labor and loyalty to the war effort. By World War II, women would be enlisted in the Women's Army Corps to serve as an auxiliary role in, in the Army. By 1978, the Women's Army Corps would be disbanded and women would be integrated with male units. Women were also called to replace the men in defense industries during uh, turning wrenches to produce war material. With men deployed and Rosie the Riveter working outside the home, the federal government obliged in taking on the role of parent in supplying the first child care programs. Though women would largely return to their domestic roles after the war throughout the 1950s, the precedent had been set. Women's liberation, in effect, meant freedom to serve the state or the corporation in the same capacity as men. The cumulative effect of all these cultural changes was a shift in the understanding of the role of the family in American society. Historian Alan Carlson has argued that rather than being an independent, self-sustaining institution consisting of individuals with particular roles, the post-World War II family was reduced merely to an association providing companionship for its members. Carlson notes the implications of this change. Quote, the companionship family could not feed or clothe itself, build a house or care for its own young, sick, or aged. It could not provide self-protection, recreation, or even religious worship to its members. The democratic, egalitarian, person-centered, companionate family needed, you guessed it, a welfare state to provide the security and services that families once provided for themselves, end quote. Thus, the 1950s family was not quite the ideal many conservatives today seem to think it was. Heavily subsidized and nominally religious, it maintained some of the external trappings of the traditional family but held to very little in substance that was worth passing on. The emergence of the new left in the 1960s did not spring from nowhere. It had been nurtured for two generations on a rejection of traditional religious and cultural authorities. The sexual revolution in the 1960s then did not represent a rejection as it did an extension of the ideals of the 20th century. Neoconservatives may have desired to jump off the progressive train at this point, there was a split in the Democratic Party. Some went over to the Republican Party. We call them the, the, the neoconservatives. They rejected the new left's cultural program, but embraced the Cold War that uh, progressives such as Lyndon Johnson uh, perpetuated. So neoconservatives may have desired to jump off the progressive train at this point in the 1960s, but this did not mean their break with the new left consisted of a substantive difference in philosophy. If the family consists only of individuals bound together in order to provide companionship, 
It's not hard to see how within just a few generations, the family could be defined as any collection of individuals regardless of gender or sexual orientation. Combine this with the fact that no economic price would need to be paid for degenerative behavior thanks to the new welfare state. We can now see how very little of anything representing the traditional family remains in our own day. The cultural revolution produced by the world wars of the 20th century would have been tragic if they were merely unintended results of a well-intentioned and noble cause. However, these consequences were not entirely unforeseen, nor were they brought about by any endeavor so noble as destroying Sauron's ring or enthroning Aragon, son of Arathorn and Gondor. The progressives' pursuit of imperialism had drawn a host of critics, first from the Anti-Imperialist League and later the America First Committee. The old right conservatives opposed the world wars, not only because they understood that the idealist vision of the progressives held for remaking the world were not in accordance with man's nature, but also because they understood that nothing endangers social and cultural continuity than war. What is most troubling, perhaps, is the seeming victory that militarism as a way of life has achieved in the West, particularly in the United States. One rarely hears outspoken concern with regard to the cultural, familial, and even institutional effects of war as a great upsetter of the social continuity. For all of the sermons and essays we come across that point to the social damage that has been foisted on the West by socialists, cultural leftists, and passionate anti-religionists, there is far too little talk of war itself. The off-and-on military tensions of the 20th century have given way to an era where those born post-2000 have never experienced the United States not at war. In terms of the frustrations and outcries against an increasingly uncivilized culture of anti-rationality, disintegrating family structures, and a culture of despair and hopelessness, one wonders how much longer we can keep ignoring the draining effects of war on sociological development. What if war, rather than being a necessary sloughing off of worldly forces of darkness, is itself an extinguisher of civilization's lights? So, those are my thoughts on the cultural consequences or costs of the world wars to establish the fact that there were such these consequences. Now, what I want to do is maybe is, is address a possible ob ob objection. Well, you, you cited one letter from Tolkien, and you talked about the scouring of the Shire, but is that all you got as far as Tolkien's views on the war? Well, first, we know Tolkien... Um, served in World War I, and that framed his um, uh, kind of his vision for the Lord of the Rings and the use of power. And uh, there's even, uh, we have strong evidence that he uh, got his whole idea of Mordor, a kind of real hell, from his visions at, on the battles in, in, in France during World War I in the trenches. 
That's well documented. If you're not familiar with that, I'd recommend uh, a book out there on the table by Joseph Lacante on Lewis and Tolkien in World War I. A fantastic book. Well documented there. Uh, but what I want to look at is World War II, the good war, right? Uh, where his son served, Christopher. And I want to look at some of his letters to his son throughout the course of the war for some of his thoughts on this. So here's a letter from 29 May 1945. So this would be at the very end of the European war because the Germans surrendered on May 8th. It would be at least some comfort to me if you escape from the RAF, the Royal Air Force. And I hope if the transfer goes through, it will mean a real transfer and a recommission. It would not be easy for me to express to you the measure of my loathing for the third service, which can be nonetheless and is for me combined with admiration, gratitude, and above all pity for the young men caught in it. But it's the aeroplane of war that is the real villain. And nothing can really amend my grief that you, my best beloved, have any connection with it. My sentiments are more or less those that Frodo would have had if he discovered some hobbits learning to ride Nazgul birds for the liberation of the Shire. Put that in your, your uh, imagination and, and apply it to the allies in the Royal Air Force. Though in this case, as I know nothing about British or American imperialism in the Far East that does not fill me with regret and disgust, I'm afraid I'm not even supported by a glimmer of patriotism in this remaining war. I would not subscribe a penny to it, let alone a son, were I a free man. It can only benefit America or Russia, probably the latter. And he was right by that, about that. But at least the America-Russian war won't break out for a year yet. He was right about that, too. This is from 9 December 1943. But seriously, I do find this Americo-cosmopolitanism very terrifying. That is a term that comes up several times. Cosmopolitanism and Babel. And he calls the Allies Babel Builders. He realizes what's going on here is not just a matter of self-defense. There's a very intentional plan in place to remake the world. He saw it in World War I when they took Europe and redrew the map. They said, no more monarchies, democracies everywhere, and we're going to divide up peoples and make new countries all over Europe and the Middle East. He knew what was going on. This is not just a matter of self-defense against Hitler. Marico cosmopolitanism, very terrifying. Qua mind and spirit, and neglecting the piddling fears of timid flesh, which does not want to be shot or chopped by brutal and licentious soldiery, German or other. I am not really sure that it's victory. It's going to be so much the better for the world as a whole, and in the long run, than the victory of, and he leaves a blank. He didn't want to say Germany. I don't suppose letters are censored, but if they are, or not, I need, you, I need to you hardly add that them's the sentiments of a good many folk. Back here in England on the home front, that's the sentiment of a good many folk. That even if we win, are we really that much better off? 
and no indication of lack of patriotism. He said, this is not because we're not patriots. For I love England, not Great Britain, and certainly not the British Commonwealth. Grr. And if I was of military age, I should, I fancy, be grousing away in, the fighting ser- in a fighting service and willing to go on to the bitter end, always hoping that things may turn out better for England than they look like doing. So he likes the idea of England as a people, rejects the idea of, of empire, anything bigger than that. And that also is an indication of his thoughts on the, the Shire, right? And understanding that different people groups should be governed by their own people instead of collectivized. Scotland, Wales, England, Ireland, not Great Britain, not the European Union. He would have hated the European Union. (laughs) May 6th, 1944. He's responding apparently to a recent letter from his son, making a lot of complaints about the war. We don't mind your grousing at all. You have no one else, and I expect it relieves the strain. I used to write in just the same way or worse to poor old Father Vincent Reed. I remember. Life in camp seems not to have changed at all. And what makes it so exasperating is the fact that all its worst features are unnecessary and due to human stupidity, which, as planners, refuse to see, is always magnified indefinitely by organization. But England in 1917, 1918 was in a poor way, and it is a bit thicker that in a land of relative plenty you should have such conditions. And the taxpayers would like to know where all their millions are going. Boy, that's... Can't imagine that today, right? (laughs) If the pick of their sons is so treated. However it is, humans being what they are, quite inevitable, and and the only cure, short of universal conversion, is not to have wars, nor planning, nor organization, nor regimentation. Your service is, of course, as anybody with an intelligence and ears and eyes knows, a very bad one, living on the repute of a few gallant men, and you are probably in particular a bad comer of it. But all big things planned in a big way feel like that to the toad under the harrow, though on a general view they do function and do their job, an ultimately evil job, for we are attempting to conquer Sauron, catch this, We are attempting to conquer Sauron with the ring. And we shall, it seems, succeed. But the penalty is, as you will know, to breed new Saurons. Hello, Russia. And slowly turn men and elves into orcs. Not that in real life things are as clear-cut as in a story, and we started out with a great many orcs on our side. Well, there you are, a hobbit amongst the Urukai. Keep up your hobbitry in heart, and think that all stories feel like that when you are in them. You're inside a very great story. Dr. Sunshine talked last night about not drawing these close parallels between and, and trying to turn the Lord of the Rings into, or, or the Urukai, the Soviets, and the, the orcs, the communist, communist Chinese. Yeah. He would have opposed that, 
not because he disliked allegory, which he did, but in his own letters, he's comparing the allies to the Urukai and the orcs. So, all right. So that's his view, some of his views on war. And again, that's only, I think, four letters that I've shared. There could have been a lot more, and you're not going to find really anything to the contrary on this. He has pretty uniform opinions on, um, I think my slide is out of order. There is one more, I just remembered. So this is one more on war. The atomic bomb. What's his view on the atomic bomb? The news today about atomic bombs is so horrifying, one is stunned. The utter folly of these lunatic uh, physicists to consent to do such work for war purposes, calmly plotting the destruction of the world. Such explosives in men's hands, while their moral and intellectual status is declining, is about as useful as giving out firearms to all inmates of a jail and then saying that you hope this will ensure peace. But one good thing may arise out of it, I suppose. If the write-ups are not overheated, Japan ought to cave in. Well, we're in God's hands, but he does not look kindly on Babel builders. All right, so there's Tolkien on war. And again, it's, I've, it, I've only made a couple of selections from letters, but I think it's a very fair representation. You're not going to find Tolkien saying really anything to the contrary in his letters on the Allies, what he thinks of the war. Does that mean uh, he is a pacifist? I don't think so. Does it mean that he does not believe in defending England? I don't think so. But he recognizes the cultural costs, number one, and number two, that there's more going on here in World War II than just a defense of Hitler. And as students of history, to the extent you want to be a student of history, I would encourage you to follow that thread out. What all is going on in the world? Because usually we can set Hitler up as the ultimate villain and bad guy, right? Must be defeated at all costs. I agree. But sometimes that distract us and the, the, the pure evil that we can impose on Hitler can distract us from some other things that are going on and other motives. Quick example. For all of Hitler's evil, and there's a ton of it, why would we arm and support Uncle Joe Stalin, who was even way more evil? And maybe we say, well, sometimes you got to do bad things in war. Okay, maybe. But if you go look in, do the research of, it's not just a matter of, okay, here, I'm helping you. Just stay at a distance. It's not how they talked about Uncle Joe Stalin. Uncle Joe Stalin was the future. Uncle Joe Stalin was about democracy. Things are going okay in Russia, according to Roosevelt, FDR. So, all right, real quick. So um, I wanted to share one of his most famous letters on uh, government. And Dr. Sunshine referenced this last night. And it's, it's just great on, on government. Um, says some really, I think, profound uh, things. And, and he uses the word anarchy, as, as Dr. Sunshine mentioned. And he also uses the word, unconst the phrase unconstitutional monarchy. How can you be an unconstitutional monarchist, kind of like an absolute monarchist and an anarchist? 
Okay. Is this guy just confused, Rambler? I don't know. He's writing Lord of the Rings, you know, meanwhile, you know, in, in the midst of giving these kinds of thoughts. So, again, another letter to Christopher, 29 November 1943. My political opinions lean more and more to anarchy. Philosophically understood, meaning abolition of control, not whiskered men's, men with bombs. Or to unconstitutional monarchy. I would arrest anybody who uses the word state in any sense other than the inanimate realm of England and its inhabitants, a thing that has neither power, rights, nor mind. And after a chance of recantation, execute them if they remained obstinate. <laughs> if we could get back to personal names, it would do a lot of good. Government is an abstract noun, meaning the and and process of governing, and it should be an offense to write it with a capital G, or so as to refer to people. If people were in the habit of referring to King George's council, or Winston and his gang, it would go a long way to clearing thought, and reducing the frightful landslide slide into a theocracy. Anyway, the proper study of man is anything but man, and the most improper job of any man, even saints, who at any rate were at least unwilling to take it on, is bossing other men. Not one in a million is fit for it, and least of all, those who seek the opportunity. And at least it is done only to a small group of men who know who their master is. The medievals were only too right in taking nolo episcopare as the best reason for man, uh, the best reason a man could give to others for making him a bishop. Give me a king whose chief interest in life is stamps, railways, or racehorses, and who has the power to sack his vizier, or whatever you care to call him, if he does not like the cut of his trousers. And so on down the line. But of course, the fatal weakness of all that. After all, only a fatal weakness of all good natural things in a bad, corrupt, unnatural world is that it works. And has worked only when all the world is messing along in the same good, old, inefficient human way. All right, so there's actually a lot here that I'm not going to be able to unpack. But I just want to point you to some things. So what, what's he getting at here? When he says he prefers unconstitutional monarchy and uses the word theocracy and says, I would arrest anybody who uses the word state. And if they didn't recant, I'd have them executed. Okay. What's he talking about here? He's, he's not a fan of democracy. Because in democracy, we are the government. And he hates that. We are the government. So, when we get attacked on 9-11, who, who got attacked? We got attacked. What did we hear after 9-11? They attacked us, why? Because they hate our freedom. Do they hate our freedom? Well, maybe they don't want it in their country, but do people wake up just one day and say, you know what, I don't like that guy 3,000 miles away because he has freedom. Let's go attack them. What, do you, what, do you, what Tolkien is getting at is there is no distinction between the people and the government. And you can't hold anybody responsible because government's this abstract noun that really means us. So he says, I hate the use of the word the state. The government did it. Well, who did it? 
We could use that in even today. Like we pass a you know a, um, a three and a half trillion dollar spending bill. The government passed the bill. Congress passed the bill. No, who passed the bill? Who voted for it? You don't hide behind the government did it and you are the government. The people's will. You're just doing the people's will. So he doesn't like this abstract view of government. Who is it? And he says with monarchy, ultimately, is you can point to who did it. And that was true with monarchy. That's not to say kings were always great, okay, and didn't do bad things. But you knew who to point to. Instead of hiding behind, we, we are the government, so we chose this. Okay. Um, he also, so there's this, this element with the democracy that he doesn't like, this, this abstract uh, noun, this abstract concept of state. But also, what is his view, positively speaking, when he says, give me a monarch... Uh, that uh, is, has the power to sack his vizier and who is interested in stamps, railway, railways, and racehorses. He wants a monarch kind of like the mayor in the Shire, who has authority, who's this public figure, and who should represent the ideals of the people, but doesn't have any real power. His real power is the ability to automatically fire somebody in their administration because they don't like the pants they wore that day. Okay? Now, we would say that if that happened in our government, we would say that's an unconstitutional thing where you can't just fire somebody. You've got to go through due process. Because, and, but Tolkien says, no, give me the kind of power where kings can all day, they have some wealth, they can go race their horses, and they can go fire their servant because they didn't like their breakfast. They're not hurting anybody else. But, and they don't have any real power. But what kind of power they should have, according to Tolkien, and there's a good essay on this by David Bentley Hart, you can look up on, it's called Anarcho-Monarchism, is how he describes it. Anarcho-monarchism. And what the idea is that the monarch, instead of legislating, he's like, let's go back to monarchs who don't, who don't boss everybody around, but have a certain kind of power, and what they're supposed to do is represent the ideals of the nation. So their job is not to go in there and legislate and make law. Their job is to do something like what Elizabeth II is still hanging on trying to do, is embody the old ideals of the nation. So they have certain privileges, they have certain luxuries that they enjoy, but don't have any real power to make laws and boss other people around. But they are worthy of honor, and you honor them, they're supposed to be good character people, not to say they always will be, but you hold them to that standard rather than having a monarch in the, or a government in the affairs of all the people. Okay. And, and, and I, I mean, I could spend a whole hour on this, actually, because I think we've flipped it. The idea is we have government by the people means we're in your affairs in, in every aspect of your life. Um, but we represent you. We don't, we would say we don't have kings. You know, I, I'm a history teacher. And, um, Every time we get into the French Revolution, it's hard to get uh, my kids to see it as a bad thing. No matter how many 
priests I say were killed or how many, how awful it was. It was like, but we got democracy ruled by the people. It's like, yeah, but there's a lot of blood running, you know? Um, so it's anything's better than a monarch. And I'm like, well, you know what? Monarchs would come around and collect their taxes once a year, and then you never saw the monarch again. Today you wake up, and the average per person commits something like 23 felonies per day, just in, in the regulations that are out there. But it's we the people. It's we're, we've made these decisions. That's the assumption. So that's his attack on government, both this idea of kind of a libertarianism, but a very moral, like Glenn said, libertarianism. I, I don't even like using that word in regard to, to Tolkien um, uh, because it, it has so many modern connotations I don't think Tolkien would accept. Um, but this very um, a, a government that's almost invisible, if it exists at all, and um, not, uh, not a democratic government that can claim it's doing the will of the people, and something that embodies, that has a more ceremonial role, a symbolic role that embodies the values of the people. Okay, so we talked about government, how are we doing? On time, so it's three. Okay, we're we're not going to have time to get all, through all of uh, on the relationship between men and women, which is okay. I was actually thinking some of the stuff he says in here is really <laughs> is is uh, I, I was I was thinking, boy, if if we ran out of time, I that wouldn't be all that disappointed. So he writes this letter during the war, okay, on with relationship on relationship advice, and says some really profound things here. So we're going to read through it. Try to read through it, and I'll, I'll just briefly comment on what he's saying. So, he says, a man's dealings with women can be purely physical. They cannot really, of course, but I mean he can refuse to take other things into account to the great damage of his soul and body and theirs. So, physical or friendly, or he can be a lover, engaging and blending all his affections and powers of mind and body in a complex emotion powerfully colored and energized by sex. This is a purely physical friend, lover. This, so he talks about physical first. This is a fallen world. The dislocation of sex instinct is one of the chief symptoms of the fall. The world has been going to the bad all down the ages. The various social forms shift, and each new mode has its special dangers. But the hard spirit of concupiscence has walked down every street and sat leering in every house since Adam fell. We leave aside the immoral results. These you desire not to be dragged into. To renunciation you have no call. Okay, so there's the physical, and he doesn't comment a whole lot. He spends more time talking about the friendly and the lover. Okay, so friendship. Let's talk about friendship, men and women. Okay, Friendship then? In this fallen world, the friendship that should be possible between all human beings is virtually impossible between man and woman. Maybe some of you uh, who are Presbyterians, this is a real live issue, <laughs> and know where this is going. <clears throat> For those who have ears to hear, let them hear. So, <clears throat> the devil is endlessly ingenious, and sex is his favorite subject. He is as good every bit at catching you through generous romantic or tender motives as through baser or more animal ones. This friendship has often been tried. One side or the other nearly always fails. Later in life, when sex cools down, it may be possible. It may happen between saints. To ordinary folk, it can only rarely occur. 
Two minds that have really a primarily mental and spiritual affinity may by accident reside in a male and a female body, and yet may desire and achieve a friendship quite independent of sex, but no one can count on it. The other partner will let him or her down, almost certainly by falling in love. But a young man does not really as a want, or really as a rule, want friendship, even if he says he does. There are plenty of young men, as a rule. He wants love, innocent and yet irresponsible, perhaps. Alas, alas, that ever love was sin, as Chaucer says. Then, if he's a Christian and is aware that there is such a thing as sin, he wants to know what to do about it. So, I received a comment the other day from a former professor of mine who uh, made a really insightful observation when he says, as I tell my students, bury your soul, bury your body. You, you, you think you're going to have this friendship, and it's very spiritual and mental, and we, just, we tell each other everything, and we're just intimate friends. Between men and women, it doesn't stay that way. Somebody, either him or her, ends up falling in love and is disappointed. What about the, the lover option? There is in our Western culture the romantic chivalric tradition still strong, though as a product of Christendom, yet by no means the same as Christian ethics. The times are inimical to it. It idealizes love, and as far as it goes can be very good, since it takes in far more than physical pleasure and enjoins, if not purity, at least fidelity, and so self-denial, service, courtesy, honor, and courage. Its weakness is, of course, that it began as an artificial courtly game, a way of enjoying love for its own sake without reference to, and indeed contrary to matrimony. This is the medieval idea of the knight and his lady, okay? the poet and his muse, love for love's sake, without a commitment. Its center was not God, but imaginary deities, love, and the lady. It still tends to make the lady a kind of guiding star or divinity of the old-fashioned, his divinity equals the woman he loves, the object or reason of noble conduct. This is, of course, false, and at best make-believe. The woman is another fallen human being with a soul in peril. But combined and harmonized with religion, as long ago it was, producing much of the beautiful devotion to Our Lady, I think that's a reference there to, to Mary, that has been God's way of refining so much our gross manly natures and emotions and also of warming and coloring our hard, bitter religion. It can be very noble. So he says that this, this idea of chivalry and nobility did have a positive effect in kind of civilizing rough men. Okay, on the battlefield, they, that there's something to aspire to. There's a certain way of treating women with respect. But he says what it does is it, it's love for love's sake, and it idealizes woman, puts her on a pedestal that she can never live up to. And, when she, and what he, where he's going with this is when she fails to live up to it, then the love fades. Then it produces what I suppose is still felt among those who retain even vestigiary Christianity to be the highest ideal of love between man and woman. Yet I still think it has dangers. It's not wholly true, and it's not perfectly theocentric. It takes, or at any rate, has in the past taken the young man's eye off women as they are, as companions in shipwreck, not guiding stars. They're not muses and guiding stars. They're not deities. 
One result is for observation of the actual to make the young man turn cynical. This is what happens when women fail to meet this high, almost divine standard, then men are cynical about relationships with women. All women do this, all women do that, women, 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 are complaining about women. To forget their desires, needs, and temptations. It inculcates exaggerated notions of true love as a fire from without, a permanent exaltation, unrelated to age, childbearing, and plain life, and unrelated to will and purpose. One result of that is to make young folk look for a love that will keep them always nice and warm in a cold world without any effort of theirs. And the incurably romantic go on looking even for the squalor of the divorce courts. Women really have not much part in all this, though they may use the language of romantic love since it's so entwined in all their idioms. The sexual impulse makes women, naturally when unspoiled, uh, when unspoiled, more selfish, very sympathetic and understanding, or specially desirous of being so, or seeming so, and very ready to enter into all the interests as far as they can, from ties to religion of the young man they're attracted to when they're set up on pedestals and men are fawning over them, they're naturally going to take an interest in that man and fall for him. No intent necessarily to deceive, sheer instinct. Again, talking about the woman. The servient help me instinct, generously warmed by desire in young blood. Under this impulse, they can in fact often achieve very remarkable insight and understanding, even of things otherwise outside their natural range. For it's their gift to be receptive, stimulated, fertilized in many other matters than the physical by the male. Every teacher knows that. How quickly an intelligent woman can be taught, grasp his ideas, see his point, and how, with rare exceptions, they can go no further when they leave his hand or when they cease to take a personal interest in him. But this is their natural avenue to love. Before the young woman knows where she is, and while the romantic young man, when he exists, is still sighing, she may actually fall in love, which for her, an unspoiled, natural young woman, means that she wants to become the mother of, his young man, of the young man's children, even if that desire is by no means clear to her or explicit. And then things are going to happen, and they may be very painful and harmful if things go wrong. Particularly if the young man only wanted a temporary guiding star in divinity, a, a muse, an inspiration, somebody to bounce ideas off of, until he hitches his wagon to a brighter one and was merely enjoying the flattery of sympathy nicely seasoned with a titillation of sex, all quite innocent, of course, and worlds away from seduction. You may meet in life, as in literature, women who are flighty or even plain wanton. I don't refer to mere flirtatiousness, the sparring practice for the real combat, but to women who are too silly to even love seriously or, to, or are actually so depraved as to enjoy conquests or even enjoy the giving of pain. But these are abnormalities. So he's like, I'm not talking about the extreme cases here. Even though false teaching, bad upbringing, and corrupt fashions may encourage them. Much though modern conditions... Uh, have changed feminine circumstances and the detail of what is considered propriety, they've not changed natural instinct. A man has a life work, a career, and male friends, all of which could and do where he has any guts survive the shipwreck of love. 
a young woman, even one economically independent, as they say now, it usually really means economic subservience to male commercial, commercial employers instead of to a father or a family, ouch, begins to think of the bottom drawer and the dream of a home almost at once. If she really falls in love, the shipwreck may really end on the rocks. So the man comes along and says, I just want to be friends, or I just want to admire you. I'm chivalrous, I'm noble, and saying all of these things, and and you are greater than me. And and women, he says, naturally are going to, are are great listeners. They soak all that up. He says, every professor knows this. Women learn quicker than the boys. The girls learn faster. Because they soak it all up, because, and they're interested in what you're saying. And the man, what he does is he loves this. He's, he gets all this attention. She's hanging on his every word, because women are like that. They're good listeners. They're help, great helpers. And the man goes off, and he's, he's, he loves this. He eats this up and feels the whole time, well, I never said I love you. I never, I never committed anything. And he can walk away from the relationship. It was just a friendship. I was just being noble. And of course she enjoyed it. And then she's left devastated. That's what he's getting at uh, here. And he says, you know what? He can do, he can do that because he, st- he has a career. He has male friends, connections, career. He can get on with his life, no problem. Meanwhile, she wasted maybe months or years in a relationship that wasn't really a relationship and was let down. Anyway, women are in general much less romantic and more practical. Don't be misled by the fact that they are more sentimental in words, freer with darling and all that. They do not want a guiding star. Women are not looking to men to be a guiding star the way men will look to women to be a guiding star. They may idealize a plain young man into a hero, but they don't really need any such glamour either to fall in love or to remain in it. If they have any delusion, it is that they can reform men. <laughs> they will take a rotter, open-eyed, and even when the delusion of reforming him fails, go on loving him. They are, of course, much more realistic about the sexual relation. Unless perverted by bad contemporary fashions, they do not, as a rule, talk body. Not because they are purer than men, they're not, but because they don't find it funny. I have known those who pretended to, but it is a pretense. It may be intriguing, interesting, absorbing, even a great deal too absorbing to them, but it is just plumb natural, a serious, obvious interest. Where is the joke? That's how women generally, he says, respond to dirty jokes and things like that. Where's the joke? They have, of course, still to be more careful in sexual relations for all the contraceptives. Mistakes are damaging physically and socially and matrimonially, but they're instinctively, when uncorrupt, monogamous. Men are not. No good pretending. Men just ain't, not by their animal nature. Monogamy, although it has long been fundamental to our inherited ideas, is for us men a piece of revealed ethic. In other words, naturally, men are not monogamous. Monogamous. You need special revelation for that. (laughs) According to the faith and not to the flesh. Each of us could healthily beget in our 30-odd years of full manhood a few hundred children and enjoy the process. 
Brigham Young, I believe, was a healthy and happy man. In a, it is a fallen world, and there's no connaissance between our bodies, minds, and souls. However, the essence of a fallen world is that the best cannot be attained by free enjoyment. Now, and this is where he's going with all this, and we're wrapping it up here. So what's the point of all this the commentary, which might be interesting? But what's the point? His point is that there's no path to easy, sustained love. Doesn't matter if you find the perfect lover, she's not. It doesn't matter if you have friendship, we were friends first. And it doesn't matter if you focus on purely the physical and deny that there's anything more than that. Where he's going with this is you're going to struggle in your relationship, it's going to be hard. And the key to it is self-sacrifice. And notice the realism here. It, it parallels his realism when it comes to war. There's no just happy endings. The story, as Dr. Sunshine said, goes on. And it's a struggle. Um, however, the, the essence of the fallen world cannot be attained by free enjoyment or what is called self-realization, usually a nice name for self-indulgence, wholly inimical to the realization of other selves. But by denial, by suffering, faithfulness in Christian marriage entails that, great mortification. For a Christian man, there is no escape. Marriage may help to sanctify and direct to its proper object his sexual desires. Its grace may help him in the struggle, but the struggle remains. It will not satisfy him, as hunger may be kept off by regular meals. It will offer as many difficulties to the purity proper to that state as it provides easements. No man, however truly he loved his betrothed and bride, as a young man has lived faithful to her as a wife in mind and body without deliberate, conscious exercise of will, without self-denial. Too few, sorry, too few, sorry, okay, um, Sorry, Too few are told that, even those brought up in the church. Those outside seem seldom to have ever heard it. All right, got to wrap. This will be the last slide. When the glamour reels wears off or merely works a bit thin, they think they've made a mistake and that the real soulmate is still out there to find. The real soulmate too often proves to be the next sexually attractive person that comes along. Someone whom they might indeed very profitably have married, if only. Hence divorce, to provide the if only. And of course, they are, as a rule, quite right. They did make a mistake. Only a very wise man at the end of his life could make a sound judgment concerning whom amongst the total possible chances he ought most profitably to have married. Chances are you did make a mistake in marriage, and you would need a lifetime of looking back to choose the exact spouse that would be best for you. Nearly all marriages, even happy ones, are mistakes. In the sense that almost certainly in a more perfect world, or even with a less, uh, um, in a more perfect world, or even with a little more care in this very imperfect one, both partners might have found more suitable mates. But the real soulmate is the one you're actually married to. You really do very little choosing. Life and circumstance do most of it. Though if there's a God, these must be his instruments or his appearances. 
It is notorious that, in fact, happy marriages are more common where the choosing by the young persons is even more limited. Ouch again. By parental or family authority, as long as there is a social ethic of plain, unromantic responsibility and conjugal fidelity. But even in countries where the romantic tradition has so far affected social arrangements as to make people believe that the choosing of a mate is solely the concern of the young, only the rarest good fortune brings together the man and the woman who were really, as it were, destined for one another and capable of a very great and splendid love. So, where does this all come together? Tolkien, whether on war, government, relationships, is very much a realist. He's looking at costs and saying, you know what? There are no real happy endings. Not to war, government, or relationships. For relationships to work, you need self-sacrifice and it's always going to be a struggle. For government, there's no ideal government that we are the government. There are real people in the government. And you need to name them and they need to be held accountable, and they need to have as little of power as possible. And in war, things don't just go back to normal. Even in the best wars, even wars to end, to get rid of the ring and to put Aragorn on the throne, things are not going to be the same. They all have costs. With this in mind, can we look at our own situations with that same kind of critical eye? Not just to be naysayers, about every last thing, but can we look and take the events we hear in the news, take our own relationships, and look with that kind of realism and say, is there something else going on here in this world? What are the costs? Even if it's a great policy and the war is justified or even the divorce is justified, what are the costs? And be realistic in answering those questions. That's the politically incorrect Tolkien that I think we need to take along with us, along with that grand, inspirational, visionary Tolkien. So I am over time, and I'm going to uh, close with that thought. Thank you for uh, your attendance.